Good morning, everybody. It's good to see a lot of you again. Uh, it's good to be back up here for the second week in a row. Um, doesn't usually happen where we can bless our pastor by giving him some break from his normal duties, but I feel blessed to be able to share the word with you this morning. And what a joy it was last week to be convicted and encouraged through Deuteronomy 26. And I know that the Lord will speak to us through his word this morning. And as you heard in the reading, we're going to be covering all of chapter 27. So most of you have already found that spot, but if you didn't already, uh, find it and I'm going to pray for us. God, you are good. You deserve all of our praise. We thank you for time to study your word this morning. May your love and faithfulness through this text draw us closer to yourself and to each other. We know your heart is for your people, Lord. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So remember last week, we talked about having a right response to God's goodness and how it should show that our hope is in Christ, that it should promote unity within our body, and it should promote righteousness and justice in our community. And this morning, we're actually going to be leaving that section of text. All of chapter 12 through chapter 26 was a big section of law. We started that section way back in March, believe it or not. It's not that surprising. Uh, and it just ended last week. And so we're going to be kind of making a, a transition to kind of those themes that we've been dealing with, but they're still very much connected. And so... That was the second of three lengthy speeches that Moses delivers to his people out on the plains of Moab, right on the edge of the promised land. And so today I've titled the teaching, We Are All Witnesses. We Are All Witnesses. And hopefully it'll become why as we go along. Now I don't know about a lot of you, but I do know that we have a number of basketball fans in our congregation. And I was reminded in studying for this teaching about an old ad campaign that was popular when I was in school. You see, this guy right here, he's a pretty famous athlete, LeBron James. He was drafted as the number one overall draft pick in 2003 to his hometown Cleveland Cavaliers. And in 2005, Nike paid for this billboard to go up in Cleveland, 110 feet high by 212 foot wide to be put up as part of an ad campaign. And this is what the press release said about the ad campaign. This is a quote from Nike. The Witness campaign pays tribute to James, LeBron James, and acknowledges the legions of fans worldwide who are witnessing his greatness, his power, his athleticism, and his beautiful style of play. The campaign has continued to live through fans in Cleveland and around the world wearing Witness t-shirts and bearing Witness placards. The city of Cleveland and LeBron James, you see, had entered into a covenant with each other. It may not have been stated explicitly other than the cliche promises that athletes make to win for their team, but there was a deep connection because of the hometown roots. LeBron James said to the city of Cleveland, I'll bring you a championship. All you have to do is bear witness to my greatness. And the rest of the NBA and all of us sports fans who love good basketball were witnesses to LeBron James' greatness on the court. But you see, it didn't all work out. Despite everything that LeBron James could do, 
winning multiple MVP awards, being arguably the greatest NBA player in NBA history. Sorry, MJ fans. He couldn't quite push Cleveland to championship heights in that first stint with them because the rest of their team, quite frankly, stunk. And instead of renewing his covenant with them, a.k.a. signing a new contract, he left. He left the city in 2010 for Miami in a highly publicized press conference known as The Decision. Following the decision, jerseys were burned, hate mail was published in an open letter from the owner, and the giant billboard was torn down. LeBron James had broken his covenant with the city to take his talents to South Beach and bless another city with his basketball greatness. Now, yes, I will admit that this introduction was a little self-indulgent, so thank you for humoring me. But I think it is a useful analogy for us of what we see happening here in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. You see, God had chosen his people, the Israelites, to be his special people. He wanted to lead them to the promised land, that chosen place that he would give them as their inheritance, as their blessing. And what we see in chapter 27 is an interesting ceremony that is to seal the deal on Israel possessing the promised land and all they had to do was respond with, in effect, we are all witnesses. So let's jump into the text, verse 1 here. And I'm going to read again. We heard it read once, but I think it's good to repeat it. Uh, verses 1 through 8. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. Now this was an ancient practice that the Israelites had ostensibly learned from the Egyptian on how to preserve precious documents. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. You see, we're coming to the end of the section of stipulations or the laws and conditions that Yahweh had put before his people uh, in obedient response to Yahweh's goodness. Moses has wrapped up his second monologue, and what is happening here is, in effect, he's repeating what he already commanded the Israelites to do back in chapter 11, which makes a very tidy bookend. He said what was going to happen, gave him the stipulations for what would happen, and then repeated again what would happen. So it makes a very tidy book into the section that we just finished, chapters 12 through 26. And what he's saying is, when you cross over the Jordan River into the promised land, you need to make sure that my law, the stipulations of my covenant with you, is made known to all the people. It should be very public. And make sure you put up as a boundary marker in the promised land, the law. Because that's how you know if you're fulfilling my law, you're getting the inheritance. And so God wanted his people to claim their inheritance by setting up those stones as a memorial. 
And so now there's a little bit of debate here. You'll notice that it sounded kind of repetitious, verses 2 and verse 4. And some scholars, commentators, contend that it's just a repeat to emphasize the importance. Now, I, I disagree, and I'll tell you why. I think it's actually two separate instances of different copies of the law. Now, what is very interesting to me about this section, and if you're like me and you grew up in the church, you just always assume that what they tell you is true. And maybe I do, and that's just my nature. Maybe some of you are skeptics. I know there are some skeptics out there, right? But I always assumed it to be true, but I had never really done the research for myself about this section. And so what I was really encouraged by and just really blown away by God's sovereignty as I looked into this section of Scripture is how historically grounded it is. You see, Moses commands the Israelites to set up these memorials and to build an altar on Mount Ebal, along with a second copy of the law. And he commands that there should be a festival. Like we saw in 26, there should be that offering of first fruits and a festival shared with the Levite, the poor, the orphan, the sojourner. It should be a party, basically, celebrating entering into the promised land, right? We've seen what happens when a team wins a championship. They throw a parade. They have a party. Everyone celebrates. So that's what God was commanding the Israelites to do. And so what archaeologists have found, it's actually really interesting. I'm going to stand on this side. Uh, in the late 1970s, in this area of the Near East, there wasn't really any interest in studying it for archaeological purposes because uh, it wasn't recognized as a real holy area in the three uh, big monotheistic religions. Um, and control of this area has been kind of shady. This is in the area that we now know as the West Bank. So it's been a kind of a contentious area. But in 1980, there was an Israeli archaeologist named Adam Zertal, and he and his team uh, discovered a large pile of uncut stones on the north slope of Mount Ebal. And what was really interesting is that Dr. Zertal was not, in fact, an Orthodox Jew. He was Jewish by ethnicity, but not by religious choice. He was a secular researcher. And when he found this, he didn't immediately recognize what he had found. And so he was sitting in a restaurant, and he had sketched out the shape of what he had found. And you can see the shape is pretty obvious there, right? Now it is. But uh, he sketched out the shape, and a rabbi came in and sat down and was having coffee with him, and he said, hey, what's that you're sketching out there? He's like, that's a cool drawing of an altar that you have. And he's like, wait a second. I've been trying to put the pieces together. And so what he had actually discovered was an altar. And so a little more digging, he discovered uh, that there was a, a more intentional structure than what was obvious. And he discovered pottery that dated back to the early Israelite era. And he also discovered ash from animal bones. Right? Animal bones. That's what you would expect to find on an altar. And so what he discovered was that all of the bones, he sent them off to be analyzed and tested, were from kosher animals. Not just that, but animals that would fit the specific age range that they were commanded to sacrifice. So all the pieces fit together perfectly to say that this is an altar. Now, how do we know that this is the exact altar? In my mind, it goes even one step further. You can see kind of the boundary 
the boundary rock wall that goes out and around, that was a giant courtyard. And as they dug and excavated a little bit further, they found pieces of pottery and they found other pieces of bone that were not cooked on an open flame, but pieces of bone that were, again, kosher animals, indicating that they had been part of a giant feast. And it must have gotten a little rowdy because all the dishes were cracked and stuff like that. But, but they were definitely partying in this area. And so as I looked into this, I was just, again, amazed by confirmation that this word that we have in front of us is true and trustworthy. And so if we fast forward then in history from Deuteronomy to Joshua chapter 8, let's uh, go ahead and turn there. Just a few pages to the right in your Bibles, actually. It's the next book. Joshua chapter 8. And we'll see, uh, initially, the Israelites do a great job of following through on this commandment. Chapter 8, verse 30. At that time, so they had went into the promised land, they had defeated the village of Ai and the village uh, city of Jericho. And they came to Mount Ebal, and Joshua did just as he was instructed. That time Joshua built an altar to, altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, that's Deuteronomy, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. That's what we heard Matt read in Deuteronomy this morning. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the Lord and the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. Again, that's Deuteronomy, referencing Deuteronomy. There was not a word of all of Moses, of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So Joshua followed through on the Lord's command to write a copy of the law, to gather the people, and to read to them the blessings and the curses. Now I want to paint for us a visual picture of what's going on here. So this is the valley of Shechem. You have to do it with a little bit of phlegm in your throat. We see that the term mountain in the Bible references something a little different than what we might expect. There are really a couple of little hills, and there's a small valley in between. So we've got Mount Gerizim, which would be on the south, and Mount Ebal, which would be on the north. And this valley, Shechem, kind of runs um, east-west there. And so half would be standing on the blessing side, and half would be standing on the curse side. Now God, in his infinite wisdom, I believe, chose this location for a couple of reasons. And again, this just speaks to the sovereignty of the Lord and the trustworthiness of the word that we have in front of us in the Bible. This location has extreme significance when we consider the idea of covenant. Let's look back at Genesis chapter 12, verse 4 through 7. And it says this, Genesis 12, 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told them, and Lot went with them. Abram, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they that had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. In other words, the promised land. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at, to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moriah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And so we see this valley, Shechem, was the very first place that God appeared to Abram and told him that his offspring would be the people to inherit this land. And so the Israelites, knowing the context of their patriarchs, their history of the nation, would have been very aware of the historical significance of this spot, of this valley that they were in. Another reason I think that this is the perfect location to enact this covenant renewal ceremony, outside of the historical significance of the fulfilled promise, is because of the geography. So this is a reverse view, a reverse view. And you can see that in that reverse view, it kind of makes almost a little stadium. Mount Ebal, you can see the little curve part there. Mount Gerizim, it makes a little curve part there. And that distance between the slopes is only about 2,000 feet. So it's not that far. And at that time, estimates are that the Jewish nation was about 2 million people. So you're packing in 2 million people into that space. And if any of you have been to a sporting event, you can know that it gets pretty loud, right? If you have that many people and there's an echo. So the acoustics of this place would have been perfect to hear Joshua clearly read the law to everyone. So it's not just that there's historical significance, but it's that this area allows everyone in the nation to hear God's law, to hear God's heart and character at the same time. And it's a really awesome visual representation of the choice that faced Israel at that time. You see, you've got blessing on the one side and you've got curses on the other side. And you have to choose which way you're going to go. Will they obey and get the Lord's blessing? Or will they disobey and get the curse? So that's the question they saw themselves facing. And so the first point that I want to make to you guys is this. We are all witnesses of God's fulfilled promise to his people. We are all witnesses of God's fulfilled promise to his people. God made a promise to Abram that he would give the land to his offspring, and he did. We know from further study of the Bible that the Israelites blew it in massive ways through the choices they made. But God was faithful to them. He kept his end of the promise. And God continues to be faithful to his people. You see, the gospel message of the Bible doesn't end with the Israelites totally blowing it for everyone, thankfully. The gospel message of the Bible is that the king of the universe created a good world, and that world chose rebellion over obedience. They chose the curse over the blessing. And out of that rebellious people, he chose a family, the Israelites, to demonstrate his character in the world. 
And because of the continued rebellion of those people, even in spite of his goodness and his blessing, he needed to send his only son to be the one to perfectly model his character in the world and to make atonement for the sins of mankind and to conquer the power of sin and death. The gospel message is that the death of Jesus on the cross took on the curse that we all deserved for our disobedience, for our rebellion. And Jesus emerged victorious, and he has inaugurated a new kingdom. He has sent his spirit to enable his people to faithfully model his character to the world. And God continues to fulfill that promise of inheritance to anyone who walks in humble obedience to their king. You see, the gospel is a king keeping his covenant promises to his people. The gospel is Jesus giving everything for you and for me. Now, if this is news to you this morning, or if you're wondering if Jesus is your king, if you have an inheritance, please find someone after church. Find your community group leader. Find one of the elders. We'd love to talk to you about joining our family. We are all witnesses of God's fulfilled promise to his people. Let's read the next section of text together. Starting in verse 15. So we saw that half of Israel was on one side, half was on the other. They're commanded to obey. And they said that they are the people. They are the chosen people. And here's the list of curses. It goes like this. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. It's an interesting list of curses here. And I want to first focus on the substance of this list as a whole unit, and then I want to take a look at why it makes sense that it's just curses presented here. So my second point is this. We are all witnesses to our failure to keep the law. We are all witnesses to our failure to keep the law. Moses and the elders gave this list in a way that reflects the character of God. You see, the list starts just like the Ten Commandments. Worship of Yahweh alone was the most important part of being an Israelite. The whole point of God choosing a people was so that his character could be reflected clearly in the world. If his people were not following him wholeheartedly, then there was no point. And then from there we see the curses kind of spill out. 
Curses that speak to social justice and the sexual ethic of God's people, which was to be different to the pagan Canaanites who formerly possessed the promised land. And these laws in this list are representative of the laws that we've covered in detail in chapters 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy. So if you want more in-depth teaching on those, you should go back and listen to the series that we've been going through. But again, the whole point of these laws, it wasn't arbitrary. It was to reflect God's character. And after each curse, there's a response of the people. And all the people would say, Amen. And we use that in our church, and I think it just becomes to us maybe a signal of, okay, prayer's done. We can open our eyes, right? That's not really... Uh, perhaps a orthodox use of the phrase. The phrase amen, or amin, as it's pronounced, simply means we agree. Or we are witness. Let it be so. So this is a public acknowledgement of what was stated to be true. And so God asked the Israelites to respond to all these curses and it was God's way of asking his people to acknowledge that sin is bad. To acknowledge that if they want to be his people, they need to image him properly. And to acknowledge that they had been served. Right? Joshua read the law. Ignorance was not an excuse to the Israelites. And there is an, an acknowledgement there, an acceptance that God's character through the law is good. And that there was a desire for accountability in the midst of the Israelite nation. So that the Israelites could be assured of their inheritance. And this is not dissimilar to our readings of Scripture on Sunday morning. right? We stand up here every Sunday and the reader says, this is the word of the Lord. And we respond, thanks be to God. There's an implication there that the word of God is good. It is useful for correction and instruction on godly living. An implication there that we need to be submitted to what the word of the Lord says. But here's the real killer of this whole list, in my mind. And it comes at the end. It says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the whole words of the law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now at this point in my life, I'm pretty good at not doing those first 11 things. I'm pretty good at not doing those things that would get me cursed, except for that last one. Now, if the point of the law was to demonstrate God's heart to his people, then in order to confirm the law by doing it, one must perfectly demonstrate God's character to the people around them. And needless to say, I would be cursed because I don't perfectly image God to the world around me. I cannot say amen to that phrase, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them without bringing judgment upon myself. And so there's an implication here that we're all doomed, right? It sounds like doom and gloom here. But thanks be to God, he doesn't leave us there. Because here's what Paul writes to the Galatians. And Paul, by the way, was a master of the law. He was trained from a very young age in the scriptures. He was 
in essence, the LeBron James of Israelites. And here's what he said to the church in Galatia. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Galatians 3, 10-14. That's what it says there. And Paul, in this section quotes from chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. He knows what you and I were thinking after I read that list. He knows what the people in Galatia are thinking too, the early church members, because they don't have the New Testament at this point. They're working with a Bible that is composed of the Old Testament. And so they're reading it and they're thinking to themselves, man, this is kind of a downer. And I've had those same thoughts. And perhaps some of you have as well. If I could just be good enough, then God would let me into his kingdom. If I could just stop doing those things that I do that I feel ashamed of, then God would let me into his family. He would want to adopt me in if I were good enough. And you see, the reality is that Jesus has already taken all of your guilt and your shame. And he has, in essence, become the curse for you and for me. He became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus' whole mission on earth was to image God perfectly and to restore humanity to their loving Father. So even though we've all sinned and are subject to the curse under the law, Christ has redeemed us by his blood, and all we have to do is call on him as our king and humbly serve him. We are all witnesses to our failure to keep the law. So what's going on here in this section, then? Does God want the Israelites to feel down and out? Does he really hate them? Is it like they said back in the Exodus, why did you bring us out of slavery just to kill us in the desert? Why did you give us the promised land just so we would blow it? No, in fact, it's just the opposite. He loves them so much that what he's doing in the section, he's actually formally adopting them in and giving him the promised land as an inheritance. He's formalizing his relationship in the sight of himself and all people that these are my people and this is their land. So how am I getting this out of this section that looks like a ton of cursing? Because it's not immediately obvious. But I want to remind you guys a couple things about this section of scripture things that we already have gone through now the first three things according to our pastor that we need to be considering when we read scripture is context and then the next two are context and context right we need to consider the context you guys are pretty good you have been listening nice job and so i want to give you guys a straightforward explanation in one minute or less. I'm just kidding. We don't do those here at this church. 
Uh, we specialize in long answers to short questions, right? So, it, it, fortunately, the explanation is not as straightforward as we would hope. Um, and so we have to dig deeper. We have to be comfortable with that. We have to be comfortable sitting in things that make us uncomfortable in Scripture and wrestling through God's sovereignty and His goodness and His faithfulness in the midst of chaos, in the midst of brokenness. We have to be willing to do that hard work on our own and with each other. And so I thought I was getting off the hook, like I said, because I didn't have to go through those miscellaneous laws. But it turns out this section, this cursing section, actually has commentators more baffled than that other section. And so when we look at Scripture, one of the contextual lenses that we use is called form criticism. And form criticism simply means analyzing the Bible by tracing the history of its content, uh, the parables, the psalms, and other literary genres, that should say. Literary genres. Um, those of you who like to write everything down, because I'm that guy, there's going to be a lot of text in the next couple of slides. Take a picture of it. Or wait till the slides are up on the website. Okay, don't panic. So we look at a piece of scripture, and we look at it in the context of what type and genre of literature it is, and that can greatly help us understand what the meaning and the idea is behind the text. What it was exactly that the author intended the audience that they were communicating with to understand. And so we've already talked about form criticism in Deuteronomy quite a bit, actually. Um, and it's kind of been subverted in. So this is where we've gotten the idea in Deuteronomy that Deuteronomy follows the pattern of a suzerain treaty. You probably remember that from earlier studies in Deuteronomy, a suzerain treaty. And so I wanted to remind you guys of a couple of those features that we've talked about. So a suzerain treaty, again, you don't need to write all this down. But in a suzerain treaty, Yahweh is the suzerain or the sovereign, the king. And Israel is the vassal, the person who's responding back to the king. And so in this, we've got a couple sections. We've got a preamble. It identifies who the parties are. We've got a prologue. It lists the history between the two parties. right? And so as we're reading through these, just think to yourself, uh, where do these sections apply in Deuteronomy? Okay, You don't need to be specific, but just think to yourself, yeah, we've heard these already. And I love what it says in the, in the prologue, too. It discusses the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal as a personal relationship instead of a solely political one. Do we see God wanting a personal relationship with the nation of Israel? Yes. Do we see Jesus wanting a personal relationship with each one of us? Yes, we do. There's stipulations, right? And I, I alluded to this earlier, but that section between 12 and 26 is a whole list of stipulations, the terms that would require obedience. And then there's provision for an annual public reading. Did we see that in this section today? Yes. There's a copy of the law made, and it says in Joshua he read it, and it wasn't just the men who heard it, right? It was everyone. It was the women, the children, the sojourner, everybody. Everybody was there, and the geography was such that everyone would have been able to hear it really clearly. And then there's a divine witness. Yes, God was there among his people. Next couple of things we see is the blessing and the curses. Now, we're not going to get into this. this is, Hans is going to cover this next week. But we do see a small section of curses here. And we'll talk about how this applies here in just a second. But then, a sacrificial meal. 
Both parties would share a meal to show their participation in the treaty. What was the first thing they were supposed to do? Law, copy of the law, make a sacrifice, have a party, right? This was ratifying the terms of the treaty. This was saying, yes, we agree this treaty is good. Our relationship is such that we can break bread together. And so we see the parallels here. In chapter 27, however, here's the caveat where it's not as straightforward, is a little bit different. It doesn't quite fit into that mold. You can see it, it even reads a little disjointedly. If you look at the end of chapter 26, Moses is speaking, and then at the start of chapter 27, it's broken up because Moses is then referenced in the third person. And then presumably back at the start of chapter 28, which we'll get into next week, presumably Moses is narrating again. So there's this section, 27, that's wedged in. It's like, hey, someone's talking, and oh, by the way, this happened, and then they're talking again. So it doesn't quite fit, and it's a little bit confusing why. And I've read a lot of commentaries, and I've deep-dived into ancient Near East literature, and here's what I found to be the most compelling argument about this section. Chapter 27 is actually a treaty within a treaty. It's a treaty within a treaty. And I don't mean to go inception on you this morning, but this is actually what's happening. It's a treaty within a treaty. Okay, spin your top, make sure it falls over, we're still awake. Right? So the treaty that is within the treaty is actually slightly different. We have a suzerain treaty, but what we have here is the section inside the treaty that is a royal land grant. And this was an ancient Near East practice that would give property or land from a king to someone else, either a group of people or a private person. So here's some of the characteristics. The purpose was to give land as an inheritance or as a thank you gift. Um, there would always be a boundary stone or markers. And in those days, they filed things in duplicate. So they had one copy at a boundary marker, and they had another copy at a central location. For reference, the land would be described in detail. The circumstances of the land exchange would be described. There would be a list of witnesses and there would be cursing. And this, ironically enough, is the most characteristic feature of royal land grant. Across all ancient Near East literature of this genre, they all include just curses. Not blessing, just curses. And then the purpose in giving the land to a private party was it would tie the land, the people the king, and whatever God was there together. It would be a formal agreement of, we agree to keep this land for you. We're going to be subject to divine intervention if we don't do what's stipulated. But we know that our relationship is such that we're going to partner together. And so again, we can see the parallels here in chapter 27. It makes a lot of sense because we have Again, I said I, I didn't agree that it was duplicate there in verse 2 and verse 4, 
Moses is actually commanding Joshua to make two copies of the law. One goes right at the boundary of the promised land, and the other goes at Shechem, which really was kind of the central point of the kingdom of Israel at that time. And if you go up, incidentally enough, on Mount Ebal on a clear day, you can see the entire kingdom of Israel. So that would have been the second copy that would have been the central location. We have in Deuteronomy description of the land that they were to take over. We have the list of witnesses that we heard Matt read, right? Every tribe of Israel was listed there. They were all witnesses. And then we have, obviously, the curses at the end of the section, right? It's just curses. And the reason is it's just curses is because the blessing is implied. The blessing is implied. The blessing is the land itself, right? You are blessed because you have an inheritance. You have partnership with the king. So that's the blessing. You didn't need to say, oh, you're blessed because such and such and such. No, the blessing is you're part of the kingdom. You have a right relationship with the king. That's why he's giving you this land. That's the blessing. The king is not going to wipe you out. He loves you and he's giving you this good gift. That's the blessing. It's not stated explicitly in the text, but that's the implication. And so the whole point is for the king to give possession of the land. People could not acquire land from a king. It is only for the king to give possession of the land to the people. So enacting this ceremony, what Yahweh is saying to his people is that you are my people. I love you. I care about you. I'm giving you this land as your inheritance. I want you to uphold my law in this land, and I will partner with you to do that. So, we really just nerded out on really old legal documents. So why is it important then that it's one type of treaty here in 27, the land grant, and not the overall suzerain treaty like the rest of the book? So let's look at these side by side, and I promise we'll see the connection to Jesus here. So suzerain treaty, Israel would be obligated to Yahweh in the suzerain treaty. There was an expectation of Israel doing things for Yahweh. But in a land grant, it's all one-sided. It's Yahweh being obligated to give the land and partner with Israel. Under the suzerain treaty, Yahweh wants future loyalty and obedience from Israel. But in the land grant, it was unconditional. It was the promised land that was given out of the goodness of his character. In the suzerain treaty, the curses are directed against the whole nation of Israel for disobedience. But in a royal land grant, these curses are actually directed at individuals who come against terms of the treaty. In other words, if you mess with my family... I'm going to mess with you. In the suzerain treaty, blessings are directed to the nation of Israel for obedience. In the royal land grant, you're blessed because you are possessing the promised land. So we see the differences there. So why is it important that it's the land grant in 27? It reinforces the idea and the truth of Scripture that the Israelites did nothing to deserve or to earn the promised land. They did nothing. 
Yahweh, out of His goodness, provides an inheritance to His people. One they did not earn based on their loyalty or their obedience to Him. It wasn't because they were good enough. It wasn't because they were cool, because they had good hair, because they were good at basketball. It was out of His goodness and His graciousness that He did that work for His people. His character and His heart toward His people alone was what did that work. And so this should direct our hearts to Christ and remind us of what God's Word says in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see the parallels there? It's God's graciousness alone. His love alone. It's not our works that put us in relationship with the King. So my last point today is this. We are all witnesses to God's amazing grace. We are all witnesses to God's amazing grace. You see, even in the way the book of Deuteronomy is structured, and even in a section that looks like pure cursing, we see God's graciousness and His wisdom. On the one hand, the royal land grant was pure grace and benevolence from Yahweh. There was nothing that Israel could have done to earn, or to make a legitimate claim on the promised land. On the other hand, the suzerain treaty that encompasses the whole of Deuteronomy is laying out an expectation of obedience in response to a loving and generous sovereign who he has chosen that they would respond in obedience to his love and faithfulness. This is what we tell our daughter Charlotte all the time. Grace is not the freedom to do whatever you want and expect no consequences. We try to instruct her that a more correct view of grace is another opportunity to choose rebellion, uh, choose obedience rather than rebellion. She does choose rebellion often, right? It's, It's sad. But grace is not the freedom to do what we want. It's a second chance to choose obedience. And so the way that this text in Deuteronomy points us to Jesus now becomes clear. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It's purely the graciousness and benevolence of a loving God through His Son, Jesus, the Christ. And there is an expectation of people who claim Jesus as their King that there would be a response of obedience to His gift of salvation in the way that we use our time, talents, treasures, and relationships. See, if we go on in Ephesians, it says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, there's grace, but there's also a call to respond in obedience by walking in these good things that Christ has already prepared for us to do. And this is an echo of what I said last week, and I would say it again with emphasis. The way that we use our time, talents, treasures, and relationships should show that Jesus is our top priority, and it should reflect His love and character to the people around us. So we are all witnesses to God's fulfilled promise to His people. We are all witnesses to our failure to keep the law. But even in the midst of that, we are all witnesses to God's amazing grace. So I want to end this morning with this. 
Yahweh is always faithful. He always shows us kindness. And even when we are unfaithful, His grace proves that He is still faithful. Right? He is full of kindness and grace to us. Even when we constantly image Him imperfectly in the world. Right? When we screw up, when we are not good enough, He is still kind. He is still gracious. I want to read to you guys from 1 John. 1 John 1, 5 through 9 says this. This is the message that you have heard from him, that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, I love this last verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear church, may we be a church that rejoices with one another in God's faithfulness and kept promises. May we be a church that is quick to confess our sin and reconcile to our king and to one another. And we, may we be a church that glories in the unearned grace given to us by our kind and benevolent King through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now, just as the Israelites were formalizing their commitment and relationship with Yahweh and how they respond to Him on those mountains, we do the same thing every Sunday. We take communion with one another. It's God, out of His graciousness, giving us His body and His blood, making reparation for the damage that we've done to each other and to our King. And so as we take of the body and the blood this morning, it's a great time to take stock of where we're at. We know we're not good enough. But are we responding to God's graciousness and obedience and how we use our time, talents, and treasures? Are we accepting his gracious provision in his body and blood? And are we committing to a grateful response as his citizens?